Morning, everyone. I got a whale of a story to tell you today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the prophet Jonah. And uh, most of you should know this story, but uh, we're continuing in our series of minor prophets. A lot of times we don't have a look at the minor prophets because they're so depressing. They're always griping about repenting of something or other and pointing out everybody's faults and problems. And, but there's always hope with the prophets. There's always some part of redemption in there. There's always some offer of grace and mercy should people turn back to God. And that's kind of this story. Jonah is one of the oldest prophets in, in the Bible. And uh, his story is a little controversial, I'll just admit it. And so we'll look at, at that as well along the way. Uh, we don't know a lot about the prophet Jonah, other than he was from Gath Hepner, about a village three miles north of Nazareth in the northern kingdom of Israel. He lived during the 8th century BC, and um, he was sent from Israel to a foreign country to bring a word from the Lord. His name actually means the dove, which is, doesn't really seem to fit because he was such an angry person. He had a lot of uh, issues, let's just say, and, and, and that's just the beginning of it. Not, not only was he angry, um, he was defiant of God, and he was rebellious. And lots of terms that you wouldn't normally think a person of God would, would look like. Uh, we see him as quick-tempered, and maybe he was racist or just vengeful because of his attitude towards trying to bring the message of hope to the people of Nineveh. Uh, some scholars actually say that he probably didn't write this book because it makes him look so bad. <laughs> Who's going to write a book about themselves when it makes him look like a horrible person? And so they think maybe he didn't write this one, but it was compiled by those that knew uh, what had happened with him. Uh, it's interesting, too, just to put this in there, that the Muslims also have a story of Jonah. And some of the details of the story are rearranged in their version uh, in the Quran. And I bring that up because uh, I'll, I'll, it's, it's an interesting perspective on Jonah. Now, remember, uh, he was sent to, to uh, the enemy, to the Syrians, and to Nineveh. This was a ruthless nation. These people were known for how violent and uh, horrible they were to, to enemies. And so Jonah, he just wondered... He knew their history. He knew how they treated his own people. Uh, this is a long history of barbar bar barbarism upon the Israelites. And so people of Israel, uh, Judah, Israel, the, the Jewish people, they were at the crossroads of three major continents, right? Africa and Asia, uh, Europe, all there. And so all the invading forces of all time in that area all came through and subjugated the uh, Israelite people. Some treated them nicer than others. Others were brutal. And so this is kind of the historical context of what's going on with Jonah is that he's sent to the enemy. He's sent to barbaric people, those that had uh, a history of, of uh, really horrible act actions towards others. We first encountered Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, Jeroboam II. He uh, was on a recovery phase in his, his kingdom. He was getting back lands and properties that had been stolen by other nations. 
And Jonah says, you're going to be okay. God's going to bless you, that type of thing. It's the only other really reference we have of Jonah as a prophet uh, in Israel uh, 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 um, besides the book of Jonah itself. And so it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah around 760 B.C. to carry a message to Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city under uh, Shalmaneser I in 1260 and Tiglath-Pileser. I had to learn how to say these words in seminary, so just showing you that I have an education. <laughs> and both of them made uh, Nineveh their royal palaces, and uh, Sennacherib also was in this. There was a beautiful city. Nineveh was beautiful. I think we have a, a picture of what it could have looked like. Uh, the, on the left is what is still standing of one of the gates of, of ancient Nineveh, and that's a picture of what it could have looked like. Uh, gardens, libraries, architecture, it, they had it all. This was a fantastic city. It was well known in the known world as a beautiful city that had everything. It had walls around it, uh, inner walls and outer walls. In fact, uh, the... Uh, well, let's just say that uh, it, was, it was the place to be uh, if you were anyone anywhere. And this was a corrupt and evil city at the same time because they were ruthless people. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah to come chat with the people of Nineveh to tell them that they had a short time before their city was going to be wiped out. So God comes to Jonah. Jonah got a message. I'm going to send you to Nineveh. And so Jonah buys a ticket on a boat, and goes in the opposite direction. So he's headed 2,000 miles to the west to Spain instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. Have you ever had a chance for God to give you a word or an instruction or put something on your heart and you're going, yeah, not today, yeah, not me, like, yeah, I'm not talking to that person, I'm not going to go help with that thing, or it's like, you know, I've got better things. It's not on my agenda. I don't have time. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to say, God, no, I'm not interested. Uh, but it's a fearsome thing to do. And, uh, you know, what kind of confuses me about Jonah is that he could have just said, yeah, not interested, dug the weeds out of his garden, painted his fence, fed the dog, you know, just kind of ignored God, just... Why did he have to get on a boat and go 2,000 miles in the opposite direction? Like he, would, he was like, I am going to go to the farthest possible place away from where God is sending me. This was a, an act, a major act of defiance of Jonah. How could one of God's prophets do this? He must have had a huge animosity against the, the Ninevites. But I don't know, sometimes when we read these stories, we have to look at ourselves too, look in the mirror, because we're not uh, as perfect as we think sometimes. And maybe it's small, maybe it's a little thing that God has asked us to do, but it's, defiance is defiance, right? If we say, yeah, God, kind of come sing praises to you on Sunday and, and say no to you on Monday, it's like, yeah, it happens way too often. So it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, we'll start into the story a bit, that God tried to send Nineveh, uh, sorry, Jonah to Nineveh, give them a, a, a warning, a hope for uh, repentance, and um, he just says no. Gets on a boat, heads in the opposite direction, a great big storm ensues, the people, the sailors on the boat are terrified, they're about to sink. This is a violent storm. This is an unusual, over-the-top 
you know, top 10 storms of all time for the sailors. And so they're, they're already throwing things overboard to try and lighten the boat to keep it from sinking. And it comes down to the fact that Jonah is defying God. God is mad. The people uh, on the boat understand that there is more going on here than just a storm. And eventually they realize that Jonah is the problem and, and the solution at the same time. So they end up throwing him overboard, as was, he says, you know, if you want the storm to stop, you just kind of throw me overboard. That's all it takes. So he's willing to die, you know, instead of obey God. He's on a boat and in the wrong direction, willing to die. It, it, it all, he's willing to run away from God at all costs. So they throw him overboard, and the storm immediately ceases. This is... Um, is an unusual moment. And so in verse 17, it says that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, let's just deal with the controversy right at the front here. Really? Like what fish has a throat big enough to swallow a human being whole? Well, a sperm whale does. <laughs> White shark does. There's a couple of creatures out there that are big enough to actually swallow a human being. Okay, so if you can actually get swallowed by a fish, how do you survive in the guts of a fish <laughs> or the stomach? Because it's all full of water, right? It's, they, they don't carry oxygen in the fish's belly. So if you can't get swallowed, and then can you actually live in a fish without drowning for three days? You know, I'm trying to think of all the different scenarios of how this could have worked, where maybe a whale keep him in the mouth, stay on the surface, you know, the blowhole has oxygen. Maybe he's just like in the, the gums. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 400-pound squid has been found in a sperm whale hole, so it is possible. Um, so uh, the, the, the thing about this this story is it starts off seeming a bit incredible. And then to be in there for three days, you got stomach juices, acids, maybe you're going to get bleached, I don't know. Uh, whales don't normally have oxygen in their digestive systems, and a person would most likely drown fairly quickly when submerged. And so, um, when people who, who have trouble with this, they, they, they move from historical fact to allegory or metaphor pretty quickly to say this was actually representative of a much bigger truth. It wasn't an actual historical event. It was more, they're talking metaphor, uh, that just they we're telling a story in the Old Testament to teach a lesson to our children and so on, because they don't want to believe that God is a God of miracles, they don't want to think that God can actually do something that's out of the ordinary or that's unusual. Um, so they don't want a literal interpretation. Rather, they want a fable or a fantastical story. Uh, here's some of the alternatives, though, to allegory or metaphor. First of all, it says that God prepared a great fish. And the word great here in Hebrew is amazingly huge and different. Uh, it, it means not just big. It's bigger than big. It's enormous. So we assume it was a whale. Uh, Old Testament talks about other creatures that were created, a leviathan. We're not quite sure what that actually was. 
But when it says God prepared a fish, to me it's going, okay, then that means it's normally not something that you're going to find in the ocean. I'm thinking he prepared a fish, meaning this was a special fish. And it's not just fishes that he was preparing. He prepared a plant. He prepared a worm. He prepared a strong east wind. He prepared a lot of things in this story to help the story move along to the point of bringing the message to the Ninevites. So uh, God could certainly have created a special fish that had a cavity large enough for a person where oxygen was present or that remained at the surface taking in oxygen. It's possible. Second alternative is that Jonah actually got swallowed and drowned and died. And he was in the belly for three days. And then the, the fish is going, this is not sitting well. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not, he's not, he's not going down like he's supposed to. So let's just release him and get on with our life. And so after three days, Jonah actually was resuscitated and realized that God is giving him a second chance. He takes the message to Nineveh. So this one, I actually don't mind this this version because Jesus looks at Jonah and says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth for three days. So maybe the just as is similar that Christ died for three days and he was resurrected with Jonah. Perhaps he died and was drowned for three days. You know, there's eight different uh, stories in in the Bible where people were resuscitated. Um, even in uh, Jesus' day with um, Lazarus, he was dead how many days? Three days as well. So others in the Bible were dead for a longer period of time, were brought back to life, and became testimonies and witnesses. So, I mean, it's, it doesn't say he was alive and breathing necessarily in the belly of a whale. He just says he was in there for three days. It's not a bad way to look at it if we're going to go the literal translation. Um, Another thing is to remember that the sea creature is not the only miraculous thing in the story. There's several different things that happened in the story that were unusual, that God had to intervene with the storm, with the plants, and so on, the east winds. It says God was actively creating things in this scenario that ultimately resulted in the preservation of 120,000 people in Nineveh that could have perished. So these people were so important that God created uh, events after events after events in order to to bring the message of repentance and hope to them. How important is it to believe the account of Jonah being swallowed by a sea creature as historical versus allegorical or metaphorical? This is something I've been grappling with all week long. What does it matter? Can we just say it's an allegory, it's a metaphor, it's historical, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that you have to figure out what it is Jesus is saying when he quotes about Jonah. In fact, he's the only, uh, Jesus refers to only four writing prophets in all of the scriptures, and Jonah is the only one that he compares himself to. Now, here's, the, here's the problem. Uh, If Jesus is only referring to a metaphor or an allegory without any qualification, then what else in Jesus' testimony is allegory or metaphor? Is heaven just an allegory? Is rewards in heaven something that is just metaphorical that, you know, you're going to be... 
What about his resurrection? How far do we go? Maybe that was just a made-up story to encourage people. And if he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, I will be in the earth for three days, and then Jonah's an allegory, well then maybe Jesus too is not really historical. The, the problem is when you start to willy-nilly kind of claim that certain stories, the Red Sea, uh, could have happened, maybe not. Uh, manna from heaven, that seems implausible. Uh, how many other stories do we want to just jettison and say they didn't happen? In fact, I guess Thomas Jefferson, one of the American famous people, he cut out all of the things in the, his Bible that were miraculous. He says, I don't believe God does miracles, so let's just cut out everything. He had not a lot of the Bible left when he was done. But if you ever hear of someone referring to a Thomas Jefferson Bible, what it means is that they just threw out all of the miraculous things in there because he didn't believe in it. So for, for me personally, I, I have to think that God was not wasting time talking about metaphors and allegories. That when he talked about hell being a place of fire and torture and gnashing of teeth and weeping and wailing and darkness, that he wasn't just pretending it exists. Why would you want to scare people to death about something that pretends or doesn't exist at all? Why make something up that is, that is not true? I don't find Jesus doing that. I find him talking about stuff that we need to know, that we need to be prepared for, that, that, it, that is coming, that we will be able to experience. And so I'm going to I'm going to vote on the side of historical, uh, historical uh, anecdote that Jesus refers to rather than some made-up story to teach a lesson to future generations. He shouldn't be comparing his own death and resurrection to a fable or a fairy tale or an allegory if it was not true. If we hold to a physical resurrection of Christ, which we do, and can accept this miraculous event as historical, which we do, then why would we question the veracity of the account of Jonah? So I believe in a God of miracles, a God who intervenes in the affairs of mankind, who answers prayer, who holds the future in his hands. So this is a very important story in, in pointing to Christ in the New Testament, the three days in the whale was important for Christ to point to when he was going to be in the earth for three days. There's a lot of other things that happened in the Old Testament. They're all pointing to Jesus. Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice was pointing to Christ as a sacrifice. Aaron, the high priest, dealing with the sins of his people, pointed to Christ, going to be our high priest. Moses offering to God to take his life in exchange uh, for wiping out all of the people and starting over again. He says, no, 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 take me instead. Save the people. Points to Jesus. Passover meal with the blood on the doorposts. Pa- points to Jesus. A lot of the Old Testament stories, they're, they're saying Christ is coming. A Messiah is being prepared. A remnant will come, and we will once and for all have a high priest that will stand uh, in, in our place and, and represent us. In fact, I can see the book of Jonah being a, a, a many version of the gospel story where a messenger is sent to people saying, repent, 
Turn from your sins. God is offering you a second chance. He's offering you mercy and grace. And, and then someone who it, it dies perhaps for three days and coming back, it, it's, it's, it's pointing to Christ all over the story of people repenting and turning to God and finding mercy. That's, it's, it's us. He sent people to us to tell us the gospel message. He died on a cross. He spent days in, 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 in the ground and was resurrected to prove that he is Lord of all. I'm going to just hold to a historical account and I'm going to say Jesus knew what he was talking about and that when he says things, he's not playing with us. He's not toying with thousands of generations of people to say, yeah, I'm just kidding. It's not really happening. That's not who Jesus is. He says he never said anything or did anything except that God, his Father, told him what to say and what to do. So in verse 4 of chapter 3, going on with the story, Jonah disobeys God, swallowed by a big creature, spit up on the shore, and he goes into the city of Nineveh, and he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days, and you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. Happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, going to happen to you. Fire and brimstone, you're toast. Too bad, so sad. I'm going to go sit on a hill and watch the show. It's kind of what he's saying. But it says in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap bags and clothes to show their sorrow. So in Hebrew, Jonah's message was five words long. It's the shortest uh, message of any prophet ever. Five words. Yeah, uh, 40 days, you're going to be wiped out. See ya. They must have, maybe this bleached white guy with seaweed on his head, maybe it caught their attention, I don't know. But whatever he said, cut them to the heart. And it went all the way up to the king, and he says, okay, declare a fast. Um, so the, 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 the walls of Nineveh, the city proper, were about eight miles in circumference, but the larger administrative district is about 55 miles around. And he's, he walks in, basically, to go as far as he can, gives a message, <laughs> goes out, sits down to watch the show. But John, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw that what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind, did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. And Chapter 4, verse 1, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. God, they deserve to be wiped out. God, they are ruthless people. They get, just get rid of them, and it'll show everyone else who messes with your people how seriously you take uh, your people, that you're the protector. No one else will touch us again if you can just wipe out this nation. And God's saying, yeah, I'm not interested in wiping people out who are repentant. And he showed mercy. Verse 3, well, verse 2, he says, I knew you were a gracious and merciful God. It's like, I knew you were gracious and merciful all along and that you were going to probably show abundant forgiveness and loving kindness uh, who relents from doing harm. <sighs> Not again. Can you at least be vengeful once for these people? And he says he was angry. And God says to him, well, he says, just, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted doesn't happen. And the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry about this? So Jonah went out, Jonah went out on the east side of the city, made a shelter to sit under it. He, he waited to see what would happen to the city. 
this is going to be good. I get my marshmallow stick and we'll put it over the fire. God relents. And God has mercy. And so it's a hot day, and, uh, and, and the, the story goes that God also prepared a plant, grew up, and like this is a fast plant, grew up, and it gave enough shade for Jonah to not be in the hot sun, sitting out there on the side of the hill in this area, uh, very hot. And so Jonah, Jonah feels, oh, thanks God, you know, for the shade at least. And the next day, a worm <laughs> comes, eats it, the plant dies, and so Jonah's mad all over again, just kill me now. Kind of dramatic fellow. I'd rather die. And uh, God basically rebukes him and says, you're so sad about a plant. And I've got 120,000 people living in darkness, not to mention all the livestock. Shouldn't you feel sorry for them? So what's the point of this fish story? Well, I think, first of all, it shows us the character and the nature of God. He is loving, kind, has loving kindness towards us. He does show mercy. He is a God of second chances. No one is so far that they can't be reached by his love. He preserved a wayward and disobedient prophet from dying, gave him a second chance, and he also preserved a city of 120,000 people gave them a second chance. Same God, same mercy. I think also it's a lesson in humility and mercy for Jonah. I wouldn't want to be swallowed by a fish and perhaps die for three days and come back. I don't know how it all works out except that God is merciful. God had a plan. God was going to do what it took to shake Jonah loose of his arrogance and his despising of these other people. His heart wasn't in it. His disdain for the recipients of God's grace was unmistakable, but he reluctantly carried out the assignment in the end. I probably didn't want to have to face no more fishes, uh, or maybe the next one would be an elephant, I don't know what, grab him and bring him back. It also shows that God cares about everyone, not just his own people. This was a, a nation that was foreign. They were ruthless. They were nasty people to all their enemies. And God show, still shows mercy and love towards them. I think the last thing in this for me is that God uses flawed people. You know, the saying goes, if God can speak to the prophet Balaam through a donkey, he can speak through you and me. If you're waiting to be perfect before God uses you or before you take a message of grace or hope to someone else, if you're really like, my life isn't in a way it should be, and I want to share my story about how God changed me and came in and gave me hope and a second chance in my life. I want to share my testimony, but I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. Great! Get in line. None of us do. None of us are perfect. None of us have all the answers. But we're just trying to share a message of hope to those that need to hear it before it's too late. Before judgment comes, before the end of their life, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what's going to happen. What we do know is we have a message of hope to share with others. So who deserves a second chance? Everyone. Do you remember a dictator in Panama called Manuel Noriega? 
Long time ago now. Uh, he was a ruthless dictator in Panama, arrested and jailed by the U.S. government. <laughs> the government, U.S. invaded Panama, grabbed this guy, brought him to prison in Florida, and charged him with uh, racketeering, drug smuggling, and money laundering. And they gave him like 40 years uh, in prison. And after, after Florida, he was sent, I think, to Spain, who also charged him. And he had to do time there. And then after Spain, they sent him to Panama, where he was going to face human rights violations. So three different countries wanted a piece of this guy. Well, while he's in Florida, God put it on the heart of, of uh, Clift Brannan, a pastor in Longview, Texas, to send Noriega a Bible. What's going on with that? I think he saw Noriega being, I think he had the leg chains, leg irons, and, and wrist things, and in a jumpsuit, and he was making his way into a courtroom or something like that, and maybe God touched his heart. This guy is a ruthless dictator, kills off his opponents, money laundering, drug smuggling, was a wealthy, powerful person. Now he's reduced to nothing in a prison. He gets the Bible from uh, Reverend Brannon, and he sends back a thank you note that he took time to write. Thank you for sending this. I I promise to read it. And so there's... Cliff does not speak Spanish, so he found a friend, Rudy Hernandez of San Antonio, a pastor there who translated. They went to the prison in Florida and had a a long, long talk with Noriega. Three hours talk, they led him to Christ. They arranged to have a baptismal tank brought into the courtroom where they had him baptized. The judge agreed to, to let this happen. And then they started to disciple him on a regular basis. In fact, I believe they used my dad's Experiencing God book in Spanish to take him through discipling. Uh, And uh, he actually wrote a letter to my dad in Spanish saying, I loved your book. It changed my life. Can you come and teach me how to pray? And uh, I have a copy of that letter. It's got a fantastic uh, signature. It's very unique. Who deserves a second chance? Everybody. We can't guess at who God may want. This, they were Ninevites, Noriega, both start with N. Ruthless, evil, despicable. Yet God had mercy on them. I don't know if, if Jonah was vengeful on a ruthless people or if he was simply a racist because they were not his people. I'm not sure it makes a difference. The Bible tells us we are not to be a judge over others. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. In other words, it's not our role to judge. It's not our role to condemn. It's our role to take a message of hope and mercy and grace and love towards others. What about What about racism? Maybe he was just a racist. Maybe he couldn't stand other cultures because they weren't like him. Uh, the Bible is fairly clear that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and beyond that, it says, give special attention to foreigners, actually. It says that God loves the, former, uh, the, the foreigners. It says, don't harm them in Leviticus 19. Do not mistreat foreigners who are living in your land. Treat them as you would treat an Israelite. Love them as you love yourself. 
Remember that you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Jonah's a bad example for us, but he is an example that we learn and we, we listen to. We follow, we, we try not to, not to do what he did. Some people are good examples to follow, and other people are bad examples not to follow. Uh, he was the second one. So let me ask, when was the last time you had a person of a different color or culture in your home? Have you sought out people from other countries to get to know them and learn about their culture? When you hire an employee, do you tend to hire those that look like you? Or are you willing to give a foreigner a chance? In your, your friend groups, in your bubbles, in your, your, your clubs, your soccer mom group, your golf buddies, your friend groups, do you have a variety of colors represented in your friend group, or are they all the same? So unless you have lived in a foreign country or had to learn another language to survive, or been in places where you are the minority and people point at you when you walk by, you don't understand how hard it is for foreigners to make it in a new country, to try and learn a new language, to try and fit in society. Foreigners, I think, are extremely brave people, and I have a great deal of admiration for what they go through trying to make a life here. And a church needs to be a place of safety, where foreigners can worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, where they can feel welcome as a part of our family. You know, I think about Jonah, and I always ask myself, am I racist? Are there people I won't go to? Are there people that I, I just would prefer God would just kill, <laughs> be done with it, get them out of society because they're just a menace? And I thought back over my career, how I went to uh, a prison between uh, Edmonton and Calgary, and it's for sexual predators, people who have done a great deal of damage to children and women and others in society. And if they put them in normal prison, they'd all be killed uh, fairly quickly. So they have one, a special prison just for people that have done these kinds of horrendous things. And I was asked to go lead a Bible study there. And so I got my police check, the prison check, I went in, and I did uh, uh, an hour and a half worth of Bible study in the, the prison, and at the end they said, you have no idea how important it was to us that you would come. We are, we are the throwaways in society. Everyone wants us to go there and never come back. No one comes to talk to us because we are the most hated people in society. And I said, I, God sent me, so what choice do I have? I remember going to Angola State Prison in Louisiana. I was on death row, speaking to people. All the people in the cell block had a time limit. They had an end date. They were all going to be executed by lethal injection. And uh, I remember, well... I shouldn't, well, I had to be careful what I say, but sometimes people do such horrendous things that, that society decides that they don't, they've, they've given up their right to be in society any longer. And in Louisiana, that's what they decided. So I'm talking to people, looking at people in these cells, knowing that they are all going to be executed at some point, most likely. 
And we met this one African-American fellow. He had a cold at the time. But the, the prison um, warden said, uh, love you to hear his voice. He's got a beautiful voice. And he said, would you mind singing us a, a song? And I felt, I felt very awkward uh, at the moment, but he sang Amazing Grace in such a moving way that I've never heard since or before. And uh, I thought, he knows Jesus. He'll see Jesus. He has paid the penalty for his sins. Uh, God has forgiven him. And uh, I'll, I'll get to hear him sing again in heaven one day. And they said, thank you for coming to visit us. Last month or so, I was in New Mexico at Albuquerque speaking to Native American leaders, doing a conference for them, and they said the same thing. Nobody comes to talk to us. Nobody wants to come down and visit with us. We are, stay on the reservation, keep your head down, don't make, they said, and you've come out of your busy schedule to speak to us. And I thought, well, God sends, I just have to go and let him take care of the rest. There are places and people that are challenging to talk to. There's people I don't get along with. There's cultures that I, I, I don't understand and I can't communicate with. And, and it's hard to bring the message of hope. This is, a, this is a Persian Bible. A Persian New Testament. You have to read it from the back to front because that's how they do their lettering. And it's a reminder to me that God does care. So when you uh, go to the ancient city of Nineveh, you can see the, the ruins of this amazing city. Outside of the city, across the river from Mosul, Mosul uh, I think it's Iraq, um, or Iran, wherever ISIS is busy. Um, there's this hill, and it's called Tel Nebi Yunus, and it literally means the hill of the prophet Jonah. And on this hill, there's some tombs underneath, and this is where Jonah apparently has been buried. This is the, what history or tradition says, Jonah's tomb is on this hill across the river from Nineveh. And according to the, let's say, the Quran, uh, they changed the story a bit, but they realized that he was their only hope. Without his message, they would have all been wiped out. And so the Jewish people, the Christians, and the Muslims all revere this as a holy site, a place of unity, a place of peace, a place of mercy. We see Jonah as a racist, a vengeful guy, angry all the time. They see him as a a savior. Without Jonah's message, they would have been wiped out. There's a transformation that happened. I'm I'm gonna go with the tradition and the history and just say, Jonah had a change of heart somehow. He stayed there amongst the people and helped them to figure out how to have a, a life pleasing to God. I, you know, history shows that the Babylonians came in and wiped them out eventually. But that's what happens with all empires. There's always someone bigger and better. But there's a monumental structure, now a symbol of peace between three major religions. That's God, right? That's what God can do. He can transform hearts. He can help us to have not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And the story of Jonah could be our stories. We could have run from God. We could, God could have chased us down. God could have done everything possible to bring us back to himself. And oftentimes he does through different circumstances and situations we face. We cry out to him, God, okay, enough. I give up. I want to put my life uh, in your hands. Come in and, 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 and my, I've screwed everything up so far myself. Can you take over? Can you do something with this life? 
and make it worth something. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we finish up this message of Jonah. To realize that we all have rebellious hearts, that we all want to do things our own way, that we don't sometimes trust God. Father God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that is running from you, that needed to hear the message of Jonah today, that they would stop their running, they would return like the prodigal son who tried things his own way, didn't work out, and realized that he had so much more back home with his father. I pray, Father, that you would show yourself merciful again to people that need a second chance. And that's most of us. Show your mercy. Bring us back in a right relationship with you. Help us to put our feet back on solid ground again. And let us be your voice of hope to those around us. Let us be willing to be sent anywhere to anyone at any time as your servants. Just simply because we're grateful for what you've done for us, may we also demonstrate love for our neighbor and our relative and our friends and our co-workers and whoever, Father, you put on our heart. Thank you for this day, Father. Thank you for the reminder. Let us go away from here realizing that you are a gracious God who shows mercy and love to everyone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.